1 Samuel chapter 6. First uh, Samuel chapter 6. I encourage you to have your, your Bibles open and uh, app maybe uh, to follow along. We're going to be covering a big chunk, so we have a, we're just going to dive right in. Um, last week we began a section of chapters uh, that has been termed the, the Ark Narrative, following chapters 4 through chapter 7, and it centers on the Ark of the Covenant, this, this precious gold chest that God commanded Moses to build. It represents the, the covenantal promise and presence of the Lord, Yahweh, uh, with God's people. It was a centerpiece of Israel's worship, and it was captured in, uh, by the Philistines after the, Israel was routed in a battle. It's been, it was devastating. We also learned that Eli and his sons have died. This is part of judgment upon Israel for their sins. And a child, an orphan child at that was named Ichabod, which was in reference to God's glory departing Israel. It's a, it's a sad condition. Um, we learn that Yahweh's presence is, and His hand is unsafe for His enemies. The Philistines were, who captured the ark, they're struck with the plague, and there's some sort of tumor, that, tumors that are wreaking havoc on them. The Dagon, their chief god idol, is toppled over, decapitated, and hands cut off when they put the ark next to it. God, God's power and His holiness is, is seen among His enemies, but we also see it, it is also among His very people in judgment who reject Him. Yet, the presence in the hand of God is, is a safe place for those who hide in Him. His provision and His rescue, those who turn to Yahweh in faith. And we see in all this chaos, God is working behind the scene on their behalf despite their sin and rejection. God is winning victories for Israel because He is sovereign and the one true sovereign God. And so, what we're going to move into this morning is kind of a second part of this, this arc narrative, and there's some themes we're going to be seeing that we talked about in the very first message, themes of leadership that will be throughout Samuel, as well as this theme of divine reversals that we're going to see both of these rich in our text today, that, that God's power reverses what seems like is the inevitable. We saw this in Hannah's song, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. And God is using people, men, unlikely people, and also someone like Samuel, this final judge, rescuer, prophet, priest, on behalf of his people to, to save them. And so we're going to look at our, our uh, text in kind of two parts, and we're just going to follow the narrative uh, as we're going to read through and and, uh, and what we're going to really see is two main pieces, the ark of God returning, and then God doing something by returning hearts to Him. So, let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us as we navigate God's Word this morning. Lord, thank You for the privilege to gather as Your church and to, to slow our hearts down um, amidst uh, busyness, uh, maybe hardship, um, distractions, um, loss, pain. Lord, we, we thank you that you, you have a purpose for us to gather as your people. And as we sang and we prayed earlier that you would help us encounter Christ. 
And through your word is one way we encounter Christ by the Spirit. And so, Lord, would you allow our hearts to encounter you, Jesus, today as we hear from your word this morning. For our good, for our joy, and Lord, for your glory, we pray. Amen. So, the returning of the ark. Now, our setting here in chapter chapter 6 is it returns to the final landing spot of the ark in Ekron. The Philistines have that, and this is what we read in verse 1. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. So it's been setting at the same spot for seven months, it's, and it's continuing to wreak havoc among the Philistines. And so they gather their priests together because something has to happen, and they don't know what to do. And this is what we read in verse 2. The Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord. It's very interesting that they now are referring to the ark of God as the ark of Yahweh, the, the covenantal name of the Lord. They're recognizing something massive even among themselves about Yahweh. Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? And they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. So the priests are called, and they're asking for guidance. And they, they encourage them to send it back to Yahweh, and there's going to be some sort of healing that's going to take place if they do. But they're to send with it some sort of offering so for a, get, a gift of some sort. And this is what we see in verse 4. And they said, what is this guilt offering that we shall return him they answered five golden tumors and five golden mice according to the number of the lords of the philistines for the same plague was on all of you and all your lords so you must take images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the god of israel and perhaps perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, they did not send the people away, and they departed. So what do we we see the priests and the diviners giving, giving them encouragement to do? To offer a gift, which is really a an offering for their guilt. And what is, the, what is the offering? Five golden tumors and five golden mice. And uh, it represents these lords, and we're going to read later, it represents the cities corresponding with these five lords. Now, what do we sort of make of these mice and tumors? I mean, very weird. <laughs> Why tumors? Well, we saw in chapter 5 when the Philistines got the ark, this plague broke out in each of the cities, and they would ship it off to another city, same thing happened to them. They ship it off to another city, same thing happened to them. And it was some sort of plague, we don't know what it was, but it was horrendous, some sort of lethal growth on their bodies, and it was taking them out. And it's speculated that it was, you know, maybe some sort of cancerous tumor or a bubonic plague. It's even been um, uh, suggested that it was, it was hemorrhoids, um, and we'll talk about that in a moment. <laughs> And mice. Why mice? Well, it references, you look in verse 5, images of mice that ravage the land. 
So it's possible that these mice were the ones spreading this bubonic plague of some sort, or they're ravaging the fields. As we saw last week, this god, Dagon, um, that was destroyed, was worshipped as a god of fruit, uh, of fruit uh, fertility among their fields and their crops. And so it's likely these mice are just devastating what would be something they refer to Dagon. So mice and tumors. Just weird. Just strange. We should feel that is weird and strange. I mean, imagine an Amazon delivery of a box of golden hemorrhoids. <laughs> Sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Uh, John Woodhouse, commentary, uh, a commentator, comically writes, perhaps one of the lords of the Philistines could pose for the craftsman. That would be gross. We should feel the, the like disturbing, like humorous foolishness of that, right? And this is what idolatry, worship of idols, should feel like. Psalm 115.8 states this really plainly, those who make them idols become like them. We become what we worship. The Philistines were idolaters, and they worshiped statues like Dagon. And if we worship and treasure foolish empty, man-made things, we will likewise become foolish and empty. And this is a very clear picture for Israel. Israel was to worship the one true God, Yahweh, not to worship or make any graven image. Israel is to see this is the, this is the way it goes when you turn from Yahweh. This is the foolishness and the emptiness that comes of you. You look like these nations. Is this what you want your worship to lead you to? Is this the beauty and the life that you were made for? Absolutely not. What's interesting is even the Philistines knew that they must give glory to the God of Israel. It was exposing their misplaced glory and they felt they needed to give it to Him. They wanted some sort of healing some sort of deliverance. They don't know Yahweh. They did not know the law of Moses. But it get, you get a sense that it, it is like every human. There's something written on our hearts. We, we know things are broken. We know that there is something wrong, that we've sinned, and we need cleansing. We need some sort of healing, and we, we attempt to atone for it in some way. I was speaking with a, a, a guy recently, and he owned a, a gym for like 10 to 12 years, and he would do interviews of everyone that would come in to want to get a membership at this gym. And he said, it's amazing the stories that people would tell that just expose people's desire for a Savior. And this is somehow going to fix them. Somehow this is going to atone and heal them. And this is here being exposed. The priest suggested that that the ark be sent back with some sort of guilt offering, a trespass offering. In Leviticus, the law taught that there's a guilt offering that should be offered when you trespassed on that which is holy. They don't know Yahweh's law, but they know there is some sort of real debt and guilt that needs to be paid for, and they feel they, it needs to be costly. As weird as these things are they're giving, they were costly. This is their best idea, but here's the irony. The Philistine priests are offering atonement for sins and wrongs, and they're wanting to be released from this curse. But what about Israel? What about Israel? 
Even a pagan nation was seeking to give glory to the Lord, aware of their guilt. They don't want to harden their hearts towards the Lord, knowing they need atonement. What, what about you, Israel? What about you, covenant people of Yahweh? And they reference this reality of the Exodus. We, we talked about this last week. This, this both clear references and allusions to the Exodus. The Philistines didn't want plagues to come upon them, as happened in Egypt, and they did come upon them. And they don't want to harden their hearts as they knew the stories of what happened when you do harden your heart against Yahweh, like Pharaoh against the Lord. And we see that they, they send the ark away, and we see this, this kind of uh, connection to what they asked of Pharaoh, to, to let my people go. And it's sort of sending the ark away, let my people go. And when they departed, we actually read in Exodus 12 that, that Israel left with silver and gold from the Egyptians as they departed. We see this sort of reenactment of God's faithful, merciful plan of saving His covenant people even in the midst of judgment. So, what do we see? Let's go back to the plans of the priests. This was speculation that this was actually going to work. This was a perhaps. Remember what they said? They need to verify and test if this was Israel's God that was causing all of this chaos. Let's look at verse 7. The priests say, Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never been a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box as its side, and, and at its side the figures of gold which they are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So, perhaps this is all just coincidence. So, they need a little test to verify this. So, they say, yoke a cart to two milk cows that have never been yoked. So these aren't oxen that are used to yokes and working. They're used to being in stalls and grazing and, and even being specifically ones that have calves. And they would instinctively, what they should do is return back to home to where their, their calves are, Right? But if they don't, it would prove that this was all Yahweh, Yahweh's doing. It's interesting, here again, the Philistines seeking to confirm the sovereign will and power of God through cows. Israel, are you seeking His will? Will you seek His will? So, verse 10, the men did so. They took the milk cows, yoked them to the cart, and shut up their calves at home, and they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So they did it. They head straight toward Beth Shemesh, the town, a town that borders uh, the Philistines' uh, nation about seven miles from where Ekron was, apparently. Now, Beth Shemesh was a Levitical city, meaning it was filled with people from the tribe of the Levites, 
And the Levites were the, the priestly clan. So that it's likely that Shiloh maybe was destroyed, the previous place of the ark, and this seems like a, a great spot for them to go. Uh, this is where the Levites are. They should know what to do with the ark. It should be handled properly, and the Lord would be honored there. Right? Well, the trend hasn't been going well so far. Verse 13, Now the people of Beth were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The ark came into the field of Joshua of Beth and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the, ark, uh, of the cart and offered the cows as burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and they set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on the, that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. And the narrator goes on in verses 17 and 18 to just talk about the tumors and the mice corresponding to the five cities of the Philistines. And in Beshemesh, there is this great stone still where the ark was placed as sort of witness and proof that this happened. Now, at first glance, this appears to be going well. It's in good hands. Things are going well. God's presence is returned. There's rejoicing. There's sacrifices. The ark and the glory of God is returned to Israel. And then we are told this in verse 19. And he, the Lord, struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Well, the rejoicing turned dark pretty quick. Seventy men died. There, there's actually speculation around the way this is, the Hebrew is in here. It could be upwards of 50,000 people died. Either way, it's devastating. What? Death came quickly in this moment. What went wrong? Well, we were given very little, but this is what we can tell. One, they, they offered cows. The Levit Levitical law in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3 says, the burnt offering should be a male bull or a male sacrifice. And then we are told explicitly this, that, we, that they, they set the ark on a stone and they looked upon the ark of the Lord. Now, the Kohathites was the branch of the Levites commissioned to care for the temple uh, items, loading them, traveling with them. And according to Numbers chapter 4, they were to cover the holy things of the tabernacle when they traveled, and they were to never look at them, even those that were handling them and were responsible for it. Numbers 4.20 says, and when, But they shall not go in to look on the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. So are covered, not to touch it, not even to look upon it. The Levites should know this. They were supposed to know this in a way to honor the Lord's holiness. This seems sadly similar. Who's Eli's, Eli's sons who did not know the Lord. 
They looked at it in some way that was profane and unholy and, and indifferent. Israel was treating His presence with, should have been with reverence and sanctity, and this is not taking place. We read them and ask, who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. And they ask this, and to whom shall He or it go up away from us? They can't stand it. So they, they, they say, we need to send this thing away. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath, Jerium, saying the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. God's holy wrath is being seen among the Philistines and His holy wrath is seen also against His people. His holiness is not to be trifled with. Is not to be something to consider indifferent, to be indifferent towards. It's interesting that the folks at Beth Shemesh likewise don't, they don't know what to do with the Ark of the Lord. It just seems very familiar to these Philistines. What do we do with this holy presence? The Philistines say, send it away. Send it away. And here the men of Beth Shemesh say, send it away. Send God away because we cannot deal with him. We, we should pick up on this failure, though. Failure that we saw back in chapter 4 when judgment came upon Israel against the Philistines initially, and they said, this, the Lord has done this, but they don't ask the question deep enough of, of themselves. Why has this judgment come upon us? A deeper question of their hearts. Why? They ask who can stand, but they don't ask, what of us? What about us? This question presents a very startling question. Can sinners with unclean hearts and hands dwell with a holy God? Well, the answer is no one can. No one can on their own. It's suggested that this verse captures really the, the center of this sort of this section of the ark narrative. A question for Israel to be asked, a, a question for all people to ask, who is able to stand before a holy God? How can one approach and be near such a holy and perfect God? The psalmist sings of that very question in Psalm 24, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. The psalmist asks that question and points us, points us to the answer that we will see unfold in our, our next chapter of who and how one can stand and witness God's mercy through what He will provide as a mediator. So we turn to chapter 7. And we see God doing something in all of this by changing of hearts. The people of Beth Shemesh send off the ark. In verse 1 we read, And the men of kiriath Jerium came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. So it's taken to this, this new city and ends up in the hands of a man named Abinadab. So in contrast to Beth Shemesh, his son consecrates himself. 
He he readies himself in some sense of holiness and purity to host the ark. It's likely that these were Levites as well who understood, and it remains there for a very long time. We see in verse 2, the day that the ark uh, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, about 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So after 20 years, the ark is resting here in this, this town. And Israel as a whole begins to lament. The, the NIV says they, they mourned and sought after him. What can we understand about these 20 years? Well, it's possible this is maybe another one of those cycles that we see in the book of Judges. The hearts of God's people were far from Yahweh. The Lord permits and allows oppression to come from surrounding nations. They, they are awakened to their, their condition. They cry out to the Lord and the Lord sends a rescuer. It does not say this, but it's possible that during this time, Samuel has been ministering the word of the Lord among Israel. During this time, he's, he's sowing truth. He's communicating God's words, and something is happening to the hard hearts of the Israelites. They're softened, and they're broken before the Lord in their sins, and they, they lament. The prophetic word that has been absent from the, for these three chapters, something is going on, and this is what appears, Samuel appears, and so does hope. Verse 3, Samuel once again shows himself. And Samuel said to all of the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Samuel the prophet comes speaking the words of the Lord. And note a few things. First, their transformation that they need could not simply be lamenting or tears. It was lamenting from the heart. Notice, all of your heart, direct your heart. True repentance must begin at the heart level for anyone. It was from the heart that they were to love and trust the Lord. Back in Deuteronomy, we are told, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. The thing that they loved, they treasured, would be the thing that they worshipped and that they served. Jesus tells us, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This text in the Gospels that Paul Tripp would would call this the treasure principle. We we all have a treasure. Each of us treasures something. The thing that that I treasure has my heart, and the thing that has my heart will, in turn, determine how I live, what my behaviors, what I do. The fact that Samuel had to address their idols to put them away is an indicator how deeply embedded these idols were in their lives. These idols were what had their hearts. And he says, you must let them go and you must turn and give your heart to Yahweh. And what do they do? Verse 4, the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth and they served or worshipped the Lord only. 
the outworking of heart change would be seen and displayed in their behavior change. And they tossed their idols away. And they served and worshipped Yahweh only. This, this change, this turn, came with a promise that the Lord would deliver them or save them out of the Philistines' hands. Look at verse 5. Then Samuel said, in the process of this uh, uh, repentance, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered, gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. What a difference. What a change of what has been happening in Israel. And it says, And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Samuel tells them to gather at this city, a, a city in the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. We're going to see more of this in 1 Samuel. And it's there that they acknowledge their sin against the Lord. But we're given a picture here of, of, of what appears to be true repentance that involves the heart. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And true repentance leads to an eagerness of living that out. But we seem to be seeing a picture here, and this, this imagery of them pouring out water is likely a symbol of their confession, their, their repentance, along with fasting, a, a life of renewal, a life of being poured out before the Lord. Israel was being awakened, not simply to an external threat of the Philistines, they were awakened to the internal threat of the very sin of their heart against the Lord. That was the greatest threat all along. And all of this is being initiated, guided by Samuel who prayed for them. We're going to look here in a moment at this sort of intercessory role that Samuel is playing and it's key. So all of this is going on. They're crying out. They're praying to the Lord. And the Philistines heard about them. Well, the old enemy, 20 years later even, even after all the plagues and the whole mice golden tumor thing, it wasn't enough. And they swoop in and they come to attack Israel again. Yet their hearts are in a much different place. Look at verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, The Lord of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Israel seems to acknowledge their helpless, needy state. They're fearful. They acknowledge before Yahweh that they they are dependent upon Him. They are helpless in contrast to what seemed to be a very independent, selfish condition. What a change. Previously, the Philistines were afraid when they went into the battle. In fact, now Israel is afraid of the Philistines. But instead of propping up some magic magic rabbit foot tool in the ark, they are now humbly coming, 
confessing their sin, looking to the Lord, and looking to a mediator to stand before them. And they're saying, we need the Lord to save us. Not something, not an it. They cry out for a mediator for Samuel to step in. And this is what verse 9 tells us. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered as a whole burnt, as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that that day against the Philistines and threw them into a confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. The Lord thundered. Through the mediating prayer of Samuel and a sacrifice, the Lord answered him. The asking of the prophet, the Lord answers. And the Philistines now are the ones being routed. So in contrast to chapter 4, Israel yelled and the ground shook. Yet there was no victory from the Lord Here we have now the Lord thundered and gives a victory as their hearts are upon, crying out to Yahweh. Do you see this contrast, this change of heart and disposition of God's people? This was a fulfillment of how God works, sung in Hannah's prayer back in chapter 2. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Israel's not looking to their own might. Actually, they're stuck fearful, crying out to the one who has might. And it is he, the Lord, who thunders. Rather than doing their own thing, they're looking to Yahweh and His might. Their hearts for Him. Their hearts upon Him. I heard a story about Abraham Lincoln. That one, of his, one of Lincoln's advisors asked him if he was thankful that God was on his side. And he replied, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on my side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. Israel's heart is now on the Lord's side, upon the Lord in faith. They've returned to Him, faith on Yahweh, and and in His victory, this covenant renewal, a memorial was set up by Samuel in verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called his name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Back in chapter 4, All of this sort of war broke out, unfolded with the Philistines in Ebenezer. And this this is where it all started, but now we come full circle back to this name, Ebenezer. And yet this time, their hearts are postured rightly in humility and faith upon the Lord. The word Ebenezer means rock of help. They did not ask for Yahweh's help before, but looked to an ark to save them. They looked in faith now upon Him, Him 
to save them. And he rescues. We should see our reversals. Instead of defeat of Israel, there's victory. Instead of dependence on an ark, they're depending on Yahweh. Instead of hard hearts trusting on self, they're now looking upon the Lord in humility and a prophet and a mediator to save them. His word and His ways. Israel would, would be faced really with two options. Turn in faith and trust on Yahweh who is holy and gracious or look independent of Him to idols and self and sin. And I guess you could consider really a third way which would really look in a religious way. We would march out with our arcs to look like we're spiritual but in turn our hearts are truly far from Him. Lip services, but hearts far away. But they cried out. They cried out from their hearts upon the Lord. And they, they are seen now as the Lord being their help. Their rock of help. From the beginning of God's covenant, forever is what Israel should turn to again and again. This was a memorial, a reflection for remembering. This is how it starts this is how it ends. The Lord is our help. And so we see now in verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Once again, we see that theme of God's hand. The cities that the Philistines had taken from the Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Samuel judged faithfully all his life, ministering the word throughout Israel, unlike in contrast to Eli, who judged unfaithfully and the glory that was stripped away. And here's Samuel giving glory to God and God's glory being restored as he ministers the word. We should see here, God's glory comes to his people through the mediation of a prophet priest who speaks God's word, prays on behalf of a sinful people, and the Lord saves them. First Samuel shows us what, what we all need from that very serious and sobering question. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? No one can, can truly stand on their own. A mediator is needed. Chapter 7 shows us how one may stand, not ultimately because of Samuel, but the one whom Samuel points to. It shows us that we need someone to stand on our behalf to pray and sacrifice on our behalf so that we may be saved. One who mediates on behalf of sinful people who are really helpless, helpless on themselves, but whom God loves and all who come in repentant hearts Faith upon Him, God will deliver and save. Do you see, saints, how Samuel points us to, to a greater rescuer? A greater rescuer who comes in Jesus. 
See, Israel needed a mediator then with a holy God, and we need a mediator now before a holy God. Romans tells us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. His perfection, His holiness, no one does good, no, not one. We've mistreated His glory like those men in Beth Shemesh. We have not honored Him well. We've hardened our hearts. We've mishandled His glory. And with that, we deserve His just, holy judgment. Who can stand before Him? There will become a day where each of us must stand before Him. We will stand before Him. Revelation 6.17 says, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Yet here is the good news, saints. Here is the glorious news. This is the, the grace, the gospel message we see here in 1 Samuel. We find salvation because God's grace comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The better rescuer, the better priest and prophet who intercedes on our behalf. This is the good news that we were reflecting earlier on in Hebrews that tells us in chapter 7, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. How can we stand? How can we come near? Through Him. Since He always lives to make intercession for them. He is the priest who prays for His people. Because He went to His, his cross and there He bore our sins on the tree. He rose from the dead. He sits next to the Father now. And all of our shame and all of our guilt and all of our rebellion and mishandling His glory, we can now find His righteousness upon us. And He prays for us now. Romans 8 tells us, Who is to condemn? How can we stand? Because our condemnation has been dealt with. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who can stand in His presence uncondemned? The one who has faith upon Jesus Christ. The one who has faith upon His perfect life for us. Who exchanged His perfect life, He gives it to us, and He takes our sin upon Himself. And it's in that that we can stand before Him in His presence. We can be welcomed to come boldly to His presence because of what Jesus has done. His intercession, His blood. So, for those who come in repentance and trust on Him, looking to His provision of a faithful mediator in Jesus, His people are saved. This is the rock of help that you and I need. We look not to ourself. We not look, do not look in independence. We look to Him. We look to Christ. He is perpetually and forever our rock of help. Do you feel your need for His help today in a, in a deep, deep way? We need, to, we need the Lord's help to be awakened to our sense of His our need for His help. The Lord's help isn't like He's, he's like a handyman and He kind of needs to come alongside of us and just help us along for the things that we're doing good already. We need Him to save us. Maybe this weekend you had fall cleanup like we did. We were, I was out raking my leaves and I needed help from my family to come help 
rake my le- the leaves. It's not quite we need like the Lord to come alongside and help us to do the things that we're doing great already. We need His help in the sense that we are in desperate measures. Life in death. Now and eternally. An unholy people who need divine cleansing and divine rescue. And His grace comes to us to help us in that very place. And yes, He does come and help us in those daily things. He does come and help us graciously for those daily things. But we ultimately need His help to save us so we can stand before a holy, holy God. Are you trusting on Him for that help today? If you're not, I would, I would plead with you. Would you turn and put your faith upon Jesus for that help, that rescue that you and I need? And Romans goes on to tell us, if you have that kind of help, how will He not graciously give us all the help that we need? We sang earlier this morning that famous hymn, Come Thou Found Every Blessing. And it's drawn, one of the verses from this very passage of First Samuel. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home by His help, by His good pleasure. It is the thing I need again and again. Notice sort of like the the forward looking here. I need that help today. I need that help tomorrow. I need that help daily all the way to the end. Why do I need that help? Because I have a wandering heart. Much like Israel, I wander away without His help acting upon me. So we sing of the power and love of of, His love in the Gospel. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, He to rescue me from danger, and He interposed His precious blood so that I could stand and remain and walk faithfully before Him. This is the amazing grace He has given us, the rock of help. His grace that comes and saves, His grace that comes to empower us as we trust in Jesus, as we follow the rhythm of Israel in repentance, turning from our idols, fixing our eyes on Jesus and worshiping Him again and again and again. So we pray, we pray to our great Savior, oh to grace how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be, let thy goodness, like a fetter, like like a chain, lock me in, Lord, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Saints, he is our rock of help. He invites us to come into his grace. The great work of his wonderful rescuer, Jesus, who comes and atones, who prays for us so that we could stand, we can walk in him all the way to the end when he, we enter in his courts. We enter in his courts, our rock of help. What amazing grace he's given to us in Jesus. Lord, thank you. Thank you for not withholding yourself from us. You sought us when we were strangers, like Israel when they were wandering from you. Lord, you pursued them. You awakened their hearts And you have awakened our hearts so that we could look to you, Jesus. And Jesus, you have not withheld yourself from us, but you're the great Savior who comes and you 
You poured out your life unto death. You poured out your blood, your blood, Jesus, so that we could be cleansed, that we could be washed and atoned for from our guilt. And Jesus, you are now at the right hand of the Father praying, interceding for us. Great Savior, thank you for praying for us. Thank you for your grace that, that, that keeps us, that constrains us. Lord, would you pour out more grace so that our hearts would be kept, not, not to wander, but to be kept for you and with you. And so fill us up with your love today, I pray. And we would keep our eyes fixed on you, Jesus, our rock of help today and tomorrow and through eternity. In your name we pray. Amen.